Hello and welcome to Tops 10, brought to you by KTXT Radio and the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University in beautiful Lubbock. Tops 10 seeks out successful and influential people in politics and government, the many professions, the physical and social sciences, or the arts and humanities, and asks them to reveal their lives, ideas, and ideals through their playlist. Our format is simple. We ask our guests what pieces of music mean the most to them and to tell us the story behind the infatuation. Mr. Derek Ginter is our producer-engineer, and I'm David Perlmutter, a professor at and dean of the college, and the originator and host of Tops 10. Here I have with me Ms. Evelyn Husband-Thompson. And now, because Ms. Evelyn Husband-Thompson's life and story is somewhat unusual, it may be very well known to some of our senior senior middle-aged and senior listeners and maybe a, a, a new story to some of our younger listeners i'm going to do something unusual and ask her to introduce herself well good morning it's wonderful to good be morning. here i am a west texas girl even though i i have not lived in this area since i was young but i was born in lubbock and um, my parents moved to amarillo and so i grew up there but I um, was extremely happy to come back to Lubbock and be a Red Raider. So I was a student at Texas Tech from the fall of 76 and graduated in May of 1980. I think just being back on the campus brings back so many memories, but it's one of the prettiest college campuses, I think, in our country. It's just great to be here. When I was a student here, I met my first love, Rick Husband. We had been students at Texas Tech. He had already been here a year, and I had been here for about six months. And we met at a basketball game. He and I spoke briefly. We both recognized each other. We'd gone to the same high school, but we really Did he say he would take you to the stars? (laughs) No. No, no. (laughs) Um, I probably wouldn't have gone out with him if he said that. (laughs) Um, Years and years ago, Tech had an old coliseum, and that's where they played basketball. And so he was there with a group of guys, and I was there with a group of gals, and we ended up sitting a row apart from each other. I mean, this just shows you how dated all of this is. But he went back to his dorm room. He lived in Murdoe and called the the Texas Tech operator and asked if they had a a phone number for Evelyn Neely because he thought that was my name, but he wasn't positive. We don't now, we're going to have to explain to some of our younger listeners <laughs> what an operator is. It may not have the it's same a connotation today. All right. Well, it's a mysterious <laughs> person. To this day, I have no idea where they were located on this campus. <laughs> but in order to make a phone call, you had to call the tech operator and ask them to connect you with another dorm room. So This was a human it was apparently app, a human. No, right? it was a human. It was actually a person <laughs> hiding somewhere here on campus, and that was their job. So she connected um, Rick t- to me, and um, he asked me if I wanted to go out. And I had plans, actually, when he asked me to go out, but I really thought he was cute. So I changed everything around. And so our first date was January 28, 1977. And we dated all through college. Um, He told me on our first date that he wanted to be an astronaut. So that's my claim to fame, if you will. So my husband, um, Rick, um, was the commander of the Space Shuttle Columbia. Um, Years later, he did become an astronaut after four attempts. He got a great education here at Texas Tech and went on to get his um, master's degree in aeronautical engineering and um, applied four different times for the space program. Um, And the fourth time he was selected. And so he was the commander of the um, mission called STS-107, and it flew um, in 2003. And so it crashed um, 
It disintegrated in space on February 1st, 2003. Over Texas? Yes, it did. Over East Texas, yes. I think there were items even found debris this close to to Lubbock. So I I have a huge place in my heart for this area um, because it it was just such an amazing place in my life, and I donated all of Rick's professional and some personal items to the Southwest Collection here at Texas Tech. And you've written a book, High Calling, The Courageous Life and Faith of Space Shuttle Columbia Commander Rick Husband. Yes, I did. Um, it was published by Thomas Nelson. I was I was approached by nine different publishers who wanted me to write a book. I was the new tragedy story, <laughs> and I just really didn't feel that... I could do that or wanted to do that, but I prayed about it for a long time and just finally felt that I really had a story to tell about our lives. Our lives felt normal to me, um, but as I started putting pen to paper, I just realized that we had really walked through some amazing experiences, and I've I've had incredible feedback on the book. Even though it was published in 2004, I still receive letters in the mail from people about how impactful the story has been for them. Well, it was one of those very few tragedies which you could call an, a, a national tragedy or sorry, a national event where everybody felt felt linked to it. And I remember the uh, space shuttle, actually from my young adult years, the, the space shuttle Challenger explosion, which I probably remember well because I just stayed watching television for like two days and then similarly a little little later in my life with um, Columbia. You know we have some impression of the partners because now there's there's husbands and not just wives of the men and women now who are going in into space. Uh, There was that old movie The Right Stuff that showed the sort of resilience of the wives and then Apollo 13 that movie as well. Was there uh, a sort of cohort of wives and spouses that that came together before, during, and after the event? Yes. The majority of us um, had already been involved with the military, so Rick was in the Air Force. And there's a sense of community um, within a military squadron. And I found NASA to be very similar to that. So we had um, a spouse group, and it, as you said, it had men and women in it. And we we're very close to each other, and and it, we were all walking through this this same experience of our spouses having these incredible um, jobs of being able to fly in space, and um, we all had many other interests, but that was our commonality with with all of us, and it, it was a very helpful. Um, environment. It's funny because we still live in Clear Lake, which is a subdivision or suburb of Houston. And there's astronauts everywhere, because that's where we all live. And it's kind of interesting to me when you go other places where there aren't a lot of astronauts and people are so enamored with them and so drawn to them. And um, they probably don't get quite the notoriety in Houston, especially in the Clear Lake area, because there's so many. Um, but it, it was just a very unique environment um, with highly intelligent people, but very kind people. When you interview at NASA for um, position of, of astronaut, you've already met every single requirement necessary education-wise and even health-wise. You go through extensive physical testing. But 
as you go when you go to Houston for the interview week, the majority of that week is just to see what kind of person you are, what kind of personality that you have. And so people who are very arrogant or very impressed with themselves would not be hired. I mean, they, to a man and to a woman, I can say that astronauts are some of the most down-to-earth, kind people, because that's that's the bread and butter for NASA is, is the public relations. And so um, Rick was that way. He was a very humble guy. He would never say, you know, when people ask what he did, he said he worked for NASA. So he, um, it took two or three more questions to get the response that he was an astronaut. But they're all like that, which is really nice. The first song that you listed for us is by Casting Crowns, Broken Together. Now, we always talk about what music means. Now, was there a soundtrack of your life that that occurred to you at that time? Was there some shared music that you had with your husband at that time? Yes. I mean, we there were several different artists that we really um, appreciated, one of which was Steve Green. We were very close friends with him, and... His music was just a huge blessing. Rick was able to take music um, on in space. We didn't have iPods or <laughs> any kind of iTunes or anything like that. So he would take physical CDs into space and listen to those while he exercised. Um, he, I saw J- James Taylor's coming to Lubbock. How exciting is that? So James Taylor was one of his favorite artists as well, and he. Yeah, we hear often about. <clears throat> in fact, that we've seen. I've seen video of, of them playing certain music in whether it's the one of the space labs or, or one of the uh, shuttles, and I've always wondered that is. Part of that getting along with others is agreeing, like, okay, you, you can't play that. If you play that one more time, <laughs> I'm shoving you out the airlock, right? I mean, did, was there any, did, were you aware of any sort of conflicts over um, taste of music? Especially because you're pretty confined space yes. for a boombox, you know. Well, uh, and that's, again, when I, you know, when I talked about with, with the, with the vetting process of when you interview. Um, so if you have a really bad taste in music, you do not <laughs> you're get to out. be an astronaut. Everyone listening to this, please re- note, okay? This is why Kanye West will never be played. <laughs> Ever. In space. Right? Well, I think in all seriousness, um, I think that they were the type of people that had a propensity to work extremely well together and just be very considerate of each other. So the Casting Crown song that you mentioned is one that's become a more recent favorite of mine. The lyrics of the song talk about how all of us are broken. So there's not one person, if you've lived more than a few days, that has a life that has been easy and stress-free. My husband now, I've remarried. um, His first wife died from breast cancer. And so both of us know what it's like to lose a spouse, even though we lost them in very different ways. The pain is still profound. I mean, it's still very strong. And I just have watched my children grow up. We have um, two children, Laura Matthew, Laura's 25, Matthew's 20. And as they've matured, they were 12 and 7 when their dad passed away. So they came to the table with no coping skills. I mean, there's, you know, I barely had any myself as a grown woman. But for them, there was, they're still a child. And so I've watched it evolve in their lives where um, they've learned to deal with this will be something that's always present in our lives so that's why that song just means a lot to me about how the song talks about how we all help each other through what do you think about when you look at me I know we're not the fairy tale you dream we'd be 
wore the veil you walked the aisle you took my hand and we dove into a mystery how I wish we could go back to simpler times before all our scars and all our secrets On this hallowed ground we've drawn the battle lines And will we make it through the night? It's gonna take much more Than promises this time Only God can change our minds Maybe you and I were never meant to be complete we just be broken together If you can bring your shattered dreams And I'll bring mine Can healing still be spoken And save us The only way will last forever Is broken together
Now, one of the things that, again, I, I'm just learning from a few books I've read about astronaut life and a few movies is that, and, and I also had a very interesting conversation once with the, a fighter pilot and his wife, and they talked about that they don't sit around talking about risk and danger no, at all. No, not fact, at all. There's, they're nev- it, it, in fact, no one ever brings up, like, well, a typical movie scene, which, I, again, I, the movie The Right Stuff, which our younger viewers should go find and, and look at, because it, it was a very good movie, the, the kind of people who marry those people are not the, oh, honey, don't go, it's too dangerous absolutely. type of, of personalities. Absolutely. Right? Well, I mean, your life would be absolute misery. So, um, no, and I mean, I, he had gone through the ranks of being um, a pilot in the Air Force. He became a test pilot. Um, we moved to England. He was an exchange test pilot with the Royal Air Force. So he would already flown for quite some time and a lot of different missions and so um the fear factor i mean it's a there but you totally know how to to manage it and not not focus on it your next song is by josh groban you raise me up now your book is titled high calling life and faith can you talk about because obviously we think of nasa as science yes you know as as the apex of human achievement in the sciences but you're bringing in faith as well. Can you talk about that and, and Rick and you? Absolutely. There are people who would argue that faith and science couldn't be in the same room, but nothing could be further from the truth because all of God's creation is so complex and so incredible to study and learn about, and it's not random. So faith parallels with with the scientific studies and the, the science that they do at NASA. And there are actually quite a few believers at NASA in the, in the astronaut corps. Rick was asked one time one of the most interesting questions, and I felt like he gave just a great response. They asked him, was his faith stronger in, in, in space? Did he feel closer to the Lord? Um, was it... Um, a very inspiring place to be and he said it was no different than at home and so they were almost a little disappointed in that answer to begin with but then he went on to say that the Lord lives inside of him and in, in his heart and that wherever he is wherever whether it's in space or in our house he's there with him and so he didn't need to go into space to be inspired to draw closer to the Lord, but it was just a wonderful thing to, to be able to experience. I mean, God's creation from that vantage point is incredible <laughs> and inspiring. So it didn't change his faith at all. But one of the things that he also said, there's sunrises and sunsets every hour or two when you're in space. I mean, it's just constant. You're traveling 17,500 miles an hour. But he said, the sunsets, when I saw a spectacular West Texas sunset last night, um, you have time to enjoy it. It, it. it goes on for a while, and it's much more enjoyable than in space because it's, it's rapid. When I am down and oh, my soul so weary When troubles come and my heart burdened be Then I am still and wait here in the silence Until you come and sit a while with me You 
The day that uh, the disaster occurred, were you were you at NASA? Were yes, you, were, I was. Were at, I was in Florida. We were all yeah. on the landing strip. What was the sequence of events of you finding out? Well, that morning we got up early, and um, the landing was going to be. I think it was scheduled for about nine fifteen Florida time. So we got up. Rick had made devotional tapes for Lauren Matthew that they watched every day and it was five minutes and he read a little bible verse and said a little prayer and then just talked to him and on this particular morning on february 1st he said i'll hopefully be seeing you today and i'm really excited to so be so he would make home. these in the shuttle no he made them before he left before he left yeah. Okay, yeah in his spare time which there was none of that so it was just very important to him and he made a, a made a, a tape for matthew and he made a tape for laura and so that morning they watched their tapes, and we got ready. And the plan was, after they landed, um, we would still be there 
for another day because they did a lot of medical testing on this particular mission. And so there was an extended post-flight physical that, that they had to go through that was going to last much longer than a typical mission. And so we were staying another night there in Florida, and then we were all going to fly home to Houston the next the day following that. So we got up that morning, and we went out to the landing strip. And it's a smaller group that attends landing, as you can imagine, than launch. But we had invited a few friends and some family that were there in a little VIP section of the bleachers right on the landing strip. And a few sections over, there was a lot of um, NASA personnel and other folks that were um, were there for, to witness the landing. And about 11 minutes out, um, all of the all of the families were there. We um, were watching um, the countdown on the clock. It was a huge clock that so counts down the numbers to landing. Yes. Okay. Just most people think of the countdown to taking off, but, right. but so you you know when yes. the landing is supposed to be taking place. Right. And there's a photograph that I put in my book. Um, that I put in my book of me and Laura Matthew standing there, and we're very excited, um, of course. And behind us, over our shoulder, is the countdown clock, and it's 11 minutes and something. So the shuttle was already breaking apart at that moment. At that and, time, and again, just for our understanding, 11 minutes is a long time at the speed of a shuttle. So even though it's going to be landing in Florida, it's still over Texas yes, with 11 minutes to yes. go, right? Yes, and so it was just a very poignant picture for me later when I looked at it because the shuttle was already breaking apart and we had absolutely no idea. They had broadcast. So they had not told you that there was any issue or They didn't problem. know yet, yeah. they didn't know. I think this is really important because a lot of people you know, don't know the exact history is that there was not a long lead up of no. like there's a problem and no. we have to address you know. No, there was not a long lead up at all. I mean, it, it unfolded literally in a few moments. Um, they, uh, I just watched the, the, the video a few nights ago because we just crossed the 13th anniversary of, of the loss. And so a lot of times online now, there'll, there'll be a lot of um, different YouTube videos and, and different pieces just of that. And I watched the other night the sequence of events and mission control. And so even when they started crossing the United States on their path, there was still no indication that something was wrong. And it it all happened very quickly. And so they were just telling Rick, as the commander, that that something was off. He, they were losing a lot of different a lot of different things were failing all at once. And so they were telling him that and he responded back, Roger, and then tried to say another word and that there was no more communication so he didn't have any there was no time for him well people also forget this the shuttle is not a rocket ship it's a glider glider. yeah it's a glider yeah the other thing that's interesting too is this would have been the first time that he had ever i mean he was a pilot on his first mission but the first time that you get to actually land and experience that is when it's really happening so there's no I mean they have simulators they have all types of training that that try to get as close as they possibly can and they have an experimental aircraft that is configured to fly like the space shuttle it basically drops like a rock (laughs) so they've had training that way but the actual landing which obviously is important 
the first time they ever do it is when it actually happens. They don't get to take it for a practice run and experience that. So it requires an incredible amount of skill. I mean, all of the pilots at NASA clearly are extremely talented aviators, so they have to be just perfect in their what they're able to do. But as we stood there that morning, I started noticing we could hear Rick primarily, which was awesome for us because he was the commander talking back and forth to mission control. And they do go through the deorbit burn. There's a period of time that there's there's a loss of communication. There's a loss of signal because they're passing through the the atmosphere and it's it there's a, there's a silent period of time, but theirs started becoming much longer than normal, and that's when the alarm bells started going off. And then they started noticing all of the failures in their um, instrumentation. As we stood there, we were not aware that anything was going on, but the first indication that something was horrifically wrong was a few minutes out and there was no sonic boom. So the sonic boom indicates that you know they're passing through the sound barrier and they are three to four minutes away from landing. So you felt, in, in retrospect, you, you think that. you knew something was off before no, was, somebody told you something yeah, was off? Yeah, I was extremely concerned because I remember asking Steve Lindsay, who was um, one of the astronauts that was with us at the landing site, I said, which, which direction are they coming from and why have we not heard the sonic, sonic boom? And I looked at his face and I knew something was wrong. And then all of a sudden, I remember everybody's cell phone going off. And all of a sudden, everybody that was affiliated with NASA was on their cell phone. And there was a, a rush of activity, and I just got that pit in my stomach that something was wrong. So as we stood there waiting, the clock counted down to zero. And I was with um, Rick's mom and his brother, who's an airline pilot. And I, I said, I don't know what's happening. I said, well, there's been no sonic boom, and I don't know when they're going to land. And, and Keith said to me, he said, there's, there's not going to be a landing. I mean, he already was putting two and two together. But we were also all in shock. I mean, we were in incredible shock. Um, and then I remember all these people saying, we need to get the crew families out of here. And so we, and I got a degree in broadcasting. I got it here at Texas Tech. So I got my degree in telecommunications. So I love the media and have never been intimidated by that. But that day, it was really rough because as they took us out of the family section and loaded us into cars, the media just started encircling us and taking pictures of us. And I don't blame them for that, but... We were just in absolute shock. So they got us back to crew quarters where we were supposed to reunite with our loved one, and we had to wait. So what you you knew before I did, because oh, you yeah. were getting information on TV that we didn't want to watch. We didn't want to turn on the TV. These, this was not history for us. Is what, And I was, I was on – I watched Challenger for two days – as well, I, I yeah. was riveted. And that was a, a time. The Challenger was before the internet. Was before social yes. media. Yes. Two thousand three. There. I mean, there was obviously already websites. And, yes. And, and there, 
there was not a social media as we know it no. had not but but people were there was texting there was updating of websites so people were going to to websites to uh, to find out information and and so information was was not just dependent on the news breaking in and saying here's an update there was a lot of other flows yes there, there. was yeah but we weren't and, but, and by choice but, but i mean they, they weren't up so nobody was updating you no by choice Okay. Because we, all of us, um, we we wanted we just wanted the facts. So we didn't want opinion, and we didn't we didn't want to hear theories or anything else. We wanted right. just to know exactly what happened, and so I did. And they didn't know at the time. Exactly. They were scrambling. Yeah. They were trying to figure out what was going on. Like I said, you probably knew before I did because um, David Jones, one of well Rick's best friend that lives here in Lubbock, he ran outside and, and saw saw it fly over actually and left a, a message at our home saying hey rick i just saw you fly over love it can't wait to to see you and um had no idea what he was looking at he had no idea that it was already breaking apart and that's what he was seeing so i i i didn't know and we waited i mean we were all very upset i mean obviously we were in shock. I mean, we weren't even necessarily crying or, or grieving because you're just in shock. I mean, it's hard to, to process. We went back to his room at crew quarters. It's where the crew, they, they, went, they go into quarantine a week prior to flying. So we went back to his room and his bag was over on the floor with, with his clothing and his gym clothes that didn't smell good because they didn't wash them at <laughs> crew quarters while they were in space. And even his billfold, because he didn't need to take that into space. So all of that was just sitting there, and we just laid on his bed, just in shock. I did call my dad, and because I, I just wanted him to tell me what he was seeing, because we just didn't want to turn the TV on. We could have. Nobody was trying to keep it from us. We just we just wanted to know officially. Yeah, and my, it would have just been talking heads and speculation. It would have been, and, and just none of us needed that. And But I did call my dad, and he answered the phone and just started sobbing and so i knew that it wasn't good your next song i think is particularly appropriate for this discussion and thank you i i know this even after all this time this i know this is very difficult but it it's so it's so important especially for an, uh, an, another generation now because we we are if you think about it our, our freshmen here at texas tech were born in 1998 or so and right so they were Five six years old when this occurred, so it's probably it may be something historically they've heard sure. of, but they probably have never heard from anybody who was there and had had a connection to it. Your next song is "I Can Only Imagine" by Mercy <laughs> Me, and uh, that sort of sums up, I think, what almost anybody hearing. I, I, you make a very good point, though, is that you know you talk to anybody long enough and you'll find tragedy. I mean, everybody suffered, whether somebody's died Absolutely. or uh, that, and and we always have to be careful in life of not sort of validating my suffering is greater than yours proportionally. <laughs> you know, if somebody dies of breast cancer or somebody I dies agree. in space, it's, you know, you lose a loved one. A loss but, is a loss. But you had the almost, you know, un- unfortunately unique situation of your loss was witnessed by the whole world. It's very public. And so you telling your story, I think, helps us process that. I can only imagine what it will be like When I walk by your side I can only imagine what my eyes will see 
when your face is before me I can only imagine Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only I can only imagine I can only imagine When that day comes And I find myself Standing in the sun I can only imagine When all I would do Is forever Forever worship you only imagine, yeah. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Closure is sort of a trite word. You, you, do you do you believe in closure, or do you have closure, or do you think that no, there shouldn't be closure? I mean, because you're you're still remembering something. Sure. You haven't closed the door right. in your life, right? In our particular circumstance, we don't really have the luxury of closure because it's remembered every year. NASA has a day of remembrance. Do you so, go to that? Yes. So oh. I. In Houston, we have a tree grove of, of fallen astronauts, and so we have a really sweet, appropriate 
ceremony where we lay flowers on all, all the trees, and um, they have huge floral wreaths that we place in front of each, honoring Apollo 1 and Challenger in Columbia. But you mentioned the Challenger accident 30 years ago, so I was in Florida a couple weeks ago for the 30th anniversary of Challenger, and it was incredible, and I'm getting around to your closure question. I'm, I'm right on it. But the, the, the Challenger family. Well, you're obviously a terrific broadcast major <laughs> from our college, right? I so, am. of course, you know how to. <laughs> I will stay on track. <laughs> the events um, that I experienced at Kennedy Space Center um, with the Challenger families are always such a huge blessing for me because it's almost like I'm looking into the future. I'm looking at families who went through this identical experience of loss under the glare of public scrutiny and 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 not having the luxury of privacy through a lot of it some by choice and some some not but being able to um really i mean in the military they call it gathering in, in intelligence or getting intel but it's just it's been amazing for me just to watch how they've walked through it with such grace and dignity it still brings tears it still is tough what I'm learning is that this is a life experience, lifetime. This doesn't happen. You can't put it in a little box and say, I'm going to feel really bad for a few months or for a few years, and then it's all going to be better. So we, in some sense, there is no closure because we constantly have reminders, whether it's dedicating a new wing at Space Center Houston, where my daughter just sang the national anthem for that. My daughter now serves on the Challenger Board of Education. So it's a very bittersweet but very important opportunity to serve. And some closure comes in that we feel like we've made good out of a very impossibly tragic and difficult situation. And so that's very rewarding. But as far as being able to say, I'm glad that's over with, I don't have to hurt anymore, that that just is not probably going to be what happens <laughs> through our, our lifetime. But you know what? Rick's worth it. I, I loved him with all my heart. And so he's he's worth the amount of grief I've had to pour in, into that. And it's just a testimony to me of how strong our love was and how strong our relationship was and what a great daddy was. So he was he's a great man worthy of of the grieving that, that we've had. But we don't grieve without hope because we're Christians and we know that we'll see him again in heaven. So we have that hope of heaven and that changes everything for us. And that's um, probably why in, in, in all the music that I selected for this, you'll see a theme of hope. And so there's, there's not despair. We don't grieve without hope. But I'm sure that all of the listeners of this program have had grief. I mean, it's just, it's impossible to not experience it. And if you haven't, you will, not to be the bearer of bad news, but it's inevitable. Those that we love, we're going to lose people that we love. And it's great news to know that it's something that you can not only survive, but you can thrive. You can you can make it through that. Wow, I'm actually completely speechless now, which <laughs> people who know me will be astonished. <laughs> those, those are incredibly beautiful precisely said words again you're a terrific graduate of her <laughs> if <laughs> our i could program. add one thing Please, too about ahead, yeah. the challenger this particular event in florida was i always go into something with 
the hope of, of learning and experiencing when, when we go. Because it's never, I mean, I don't get all excited and think, yay, we're going to Florida to do another memorial. So, I mean, you have to, to approach it with the mindset that there there's, there's going to be new lessons learned and new experiences. And I've grown very close to these families, very close. One of the family members that I'd never met before came for this ceremony, and it was absolutely delightful and very moving to meet him, and it was Krista McAuliffe's son. So the McAuliffe's, she was the first teacher in space. So she was a teacher, and out of hundreds and thousands of candidates was chosen to go, and her backup was a lady named Barbara Morgan, who I actually sat next to on the platform at the ceremony, and she's delightful. She actually was in crew quarters the day that Rick died, which was amazing. She had just flown there to do some work. Um, because she ended up getting to go into space years later. And so she just really encouraged me. She had walked through this, you know, before with the Challenger crew. But Scott McAuliffe came. So Scott was nine years old when his when his mom died on, on Challenger. And obviously devastating. I mean, my heart goes out to him. My son Matthew was seven. So it's just it's just so challenging to, to wrap your mind around losing a parent at that age, in any age. But he came to this ceremony and came that, to all of our events with his wife and his two boys. And David, I have to tell you, it's one of those moments that you think, this, this is a moment I will never forget. This is, this is a holy moment. We worked very, very hard with Kennedy Space Center for three years, and they just opened a wing at the Visitor Center. If you ever have the opportunity to go, if any of your listeners have an opportunity to go, it is phenomenal. It's called Forever Remembered. And... It's for the Challenger and, and Columbia crews, and you walk, it's just, it's beautiful. It's state-of-the-art, beautiful. But you go down the first hallway, and there's display cases for each crew member, and we donated items. So, as I told you, my I donated all of Rick's um, collection to the Southwest Collection here at Texas Tech. So, Dr. Monty Monroe helped me, and we had to, we only were allowed to put a few items in the case. So, with, with just a couple of photographs, and a few items, I'm trying to summarize who Rick was. So I put his cowboy boots in there, and they desperately needed polishing, but he liked them like that. So his cowboy boots are in there, um, his Boy Scout shirt from um, when he was in Boy Scouts, and a, a photograph of him praying with the crew before they went out to the um, crew vehicle to take him to the orbiter for the space shuttle flight. And also his Bible, with his favorite Bible verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, highlighted. And in just, a, you know, you have about five seconds most people will spend to look at a case. And you just want them to get to know the person just a little better. Mm-hmm. And not, everybody can look online and see anything and everything about their official bio. But but who were, there? there were people. I mean, they were moms and dads and had other interests besides that was their job. I mean, it was a cool job. Don't get me wrong, but they had other. There's other parts of them that wasn't the entire part of them being an astronaut. It was a, a part. It wasn't their their whole. And so Scott went through th- that forever remembered display. And as you turn the corner, there's a, a room, and it's it's just very um, beautifully lit. It's low lighting. And in one enormous display case is a piece of Challenger that they pulled out of a silo and they refurbished for over a year and restored it. And the other display case are the window frames of Columbia that they found. And they're intact. I mean, it's the whole metal frame. 
And there's not a whole lot of wording. There's not anything. I mean, they speak for themselves. But to watch Scott McAuliffe walk into that room and stand there with his sons looking at that was I mean, I just, I just stood there. I just thought this, this is a holy moment. This, this is, this is a, a defining moment for him. And so, when we talked about closure earlier, I think that there's a piece of that that, yes, it hurts and yes, it's hard. But I think it helps you process what happened. When we had opened this wing, it only opened last summer. Um, Joy McNair did the exact same thing. She was a baby. She was an infant when her dad died on Challenger. So she stood there with her mom for the longest time and just looked at that. And I just stood in the back of the room and just just watched them look at that. There's All of us um, have just gone through such um, a struggle to understand and accept and, and um, live with what, what happened to our family members. But we appreciate so much what Kennedy Space Center did with this. It was it's an incredible tribute. As you go around to the other wing, it talks about emotional healing and it shows pictures. I mean, it's pretty weird for me because I'm still me, but but there I am on a, a wall and it's um, showing me sitting next to President Bush with my daughter and my son at the at the memorial service at at Johnson Space Center four days after we lost the crew um, and it just goes through a lot of different pictures and thousands thousands of school children so maybe some of your freshmen here at, at, at Texas Tech may have been some of those preschoolers and and young young kids that wrote these amazing letters to the families that we absolutely treasured more than anything with even with misspelled words and really sweet drawings that that probably blessed all of the families more than than almost anything was the response from thousands and thousands of of school children well i'm thinking a lot of people are going to go visit now it's beautiful because i I didn't know either of those places the the memorial wood or the place in 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 florida existed yeah your next song is um seas of crimson i guess we keep hitting things that are often very relevant by by shane and shane tell us about seas of crimson it just talks about it just talks about the different seasons of life that we walk through and how incredibly difficult they are but by the grace of God you're able to navigate through um, again I just you know I'm not very diverse in my music selection because all of the things that I choose um, convey hope and so that is is why I love this song so much because it's a very inspiring song of of hope for every curse you're the cure for every sickness you're the healer for every storm you're that's lost oh what a savior and on that cross of Calvary every burden has been defeated and every wretched heart redeemed you drown our sins in the seas of Yeah. 
Let me ask you, I remember 
after Challenger, I became very interested in science communication because it was clear that there were some serious errors done with Challenger internally in, in simple communication. Yeah. There's, the, there's anyone who can find this online, the famous PowerPoint of Doom, where there was a PowerPoint <laughs> presentation. And I think it was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly, slide 34, <laughs> uh, bullet point seven, had some very tortuously worded phrase, which if a broadcast graduate of our college <laughs> had rewritten would have been, if we do this, it'll probably blow up. Right. And the engineers just couldn't bring themselves to, to write that definitively about anything, and they, and they weren't trained to do that. And I'm not saying it was their fault, but, no. but there really were some issues there of decisions, and there's this whole uh, fascinating research on, like, the, the, uh, the blowback of success. When you take a risk and you're successful, you start thinking there's no risks anymore, so you just can do it every time. Was there that for you and huh. Columbia? I mean, are, are, I mean, I hate to use the word blame, but... You know, uh, do you blame anybody for what happened to Columbia? No, and that's a great question. Um, and that's only by the grace of God, to be absolutely honest. For whatever reason, I've never felt bitter, and I've never felt angry towards NASA. I mean, it, it was hard. And, and you identified exactly the same problems that they discovered when they did the huge accident investigation after the loss in February. They re released a five or six phone book size report um, in August of 2003 that identified many, many, many areas that they felt led to the disaster. But you perfectly identified the issue, and it, it, it wasn't fixed after Challenger. It was the culture. So there's a, there's a way of thinking as a culture within NASA of exactly what you said. So there's there's risk, but we're able to overcome this and and, 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 and we don't we don't have problems. So there was there was um, as much of um, lack of of thoroughness. There was they were it was identified early on what happened with, with Columbia when they launched um, you know there's an external tank that's completely covered with, with a foam like substance to protect it. And they through the years, and they learned this through the, the investigation, certain pieces of the foam would break off during the launch sequence. And that happened every time. It didn't happen every time. Well, it happened most times. Well, it, it, it happened you, every time, but it didn't strike the, the orbiter I'm sorry, every yeah, time. As I, as just in my you know, yes. lay reading, yes. it was normal for pieces to break off. Yes. It was abnormal for those pieces to impact yes. the shuttle and cause damage. But those pieces were breaking off That's at correct. extreme velocity. That's so even though correct. you're using the word foam, right. we're talking about something that hit with concrete Yes, intensity. Absolutely, yeah. and so it was interesting when they when they did this extensive accident investigation. They found that there were more foam strikes than they had ever known, and one of the astronauts that was you know very close to our family, and he was actually my casualty assistance officer that Rick and I had selected just in case. So we had to choose a casualty assistance officer. He was in the same astronaut class as Rick. But um, Steve Lindsay was shocked to find that on his mission, he flew, he was one of the crew members when John Glenn went into space um, when he was older. And they had a foam strike on that mission as well. And Steve on, didn't know. On the, the, the body of the shuttle. Yes. And they'd suffered damage. But, now they, and they didn't, I mean, this is not something they were damage. tracking of? No. Yeah. They had so no that's idea. a perfect example is that it didn't 
destroy the previous shuttle. Right. So there was a culture of like, well, I guess it's not Correct. capable of destroying a shuttle. No, it was just pure luck that it didn't. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a matter of time right. <laughs> before something tragic would happen. But the, the, the sad part is they knew about the foam strike day two of their mission, but they, they even told Rick about it. And there's a transcript where he says, thank you so much for letting me know. Great work, everybody. And he was getting ready to do a media interview. And they thought in case they asked him a question during the interview that he would know what they were talking about. One of the things... They that, told him, excuse me, they told him... That there had been a foam strike but on they the orbiter. They didn't know the level of damage of, course of not. the strike. No. And there was no way, I mean, you know, again, you're thinking in terms of free terms, there's no way, like, they couldn't look? Yes, they could. Okay. But they didn't. They were all, no. And the other thing that they didn't do, there were several people, and this was all in the CABE report and the Columbia Accident Investigation. They, there were people insisting within the NASA community that they needed to have the, mili the military have satellites, and they could have taken satellite photography of the orbiter, and they said that's too expensive, and we, we don't think it's necessary. Wow. Also, I mean, it was a 16-day mission. I, mean, I, mean, I hate to press on this, but who's the they here? So there's there's a group of people. There's a flight director, and there's yeah. there's a team that that works each shuttle mission, and so within that team, that was the decision made. I mean, obviously, there's retrospect in Monday morning quarterbacking, but it, just, it, it it is hard mm -hmm. to imagine knowing there was a a, a non-zero in scientific terms Correct. chance of catastrophic failure. And people said things like, well, it takes too much bother for a spacewalk or it's too expensive to exactly. turn a satellite around. And, and you sort of wonder, you know, that's where you want a movie moment where somebody says, well, just build me, you know, or something like <laughs> right. that. They can build me. Either it's a line from the movie uh, Aliens, you know, uh, there were, were actually a similar situation. You're an extraordinary person not to feel bitterness well, about I, that. Well, I give total credit to the Lord, and I'm, that's not a trite response because... I think he had great plans for me after all of this happened, and that just wasn't a place I wanted to go. The other reason, I'll tell you one of the main reasons I didn't want to go there, is I didn't want my children growing up in this environment of me just being bitter and, and setting that example for them. That just would have been pointless, because at the end of the day, that wouldn't have brought Rick back. If, if I went through all of the, the trauma of, of being living, I mean, they, there were specific people cited in the accident investigation report that made poor decisions. We had names. I mean, there's specific people. Yeah. Do you do you do you have, have you met those people? I knew who they were. I mean, yeah. I hadn't had conversations with them. Yeah. It was a mistake. I mean, it was a horrible mistake. I mean, it was a lethal mistake. But it was a mistake. They they didn't. These are incredible professionals. I mean, they would have never obviously made those decisions if they knew what would have happened. But the sad thing is, is the whole crew was trained to do EVAs, spacewalks, and they could have done a spacewalk to do a 360 around the orbiter and they would yeah. have found it. And they could have... And the reason they gave for not doing that? I mean, well, I guess what... what they didn't uh, feel like there was any damage. Yeah. But, after, but they didn't know. No. And after Rick's, <laughs> They didn't know there was any damage. But well, they, and we had they, a down period. I mean, the, yeah. you know, the fleet was totally grounded, obviously, until the accident investigation came out. One of the things that they changed after the space flight, uh, they installed a robotic arm that did a 360 on every orbiter after that. So they had a complete diagnostic of the, sh of the condition of the orbiter after launch every mission subsequent to Columbia until they, their fleet retired. If they had done the satellite or the walk, would there have been something that they could have done? Yes. Wow. Yeah, there were several options. 
all of them would have been with you know high risk but if you have if you have high risk versus dying i mean you go for the high risk plus you have to realize you would have had seven you had, you know, seven crew members that would have been highly motivated to figure out a way to repair yeah. the the damage done to the wing, because basically what happened is they re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. All of there's plasma that surrounds the orbiter because of the intensity of of the friction coming back into the um, Earth's atmosphere. So it almost looks like it's bathed in fire. Yeah, well, um, I, we've seen those pictures. It, it's a glowing. Yes trident the the heat is incredible the pressure is incredible yes and so there's even a a video that they took inside the orbiter just prior to the accident and rick and willie mccool are having a conversation willie's the pilot rick's the commander and they're sitting there in the the cockpit of the shuttle and they're they're starting through the deorbit burn and rick is telling willie about the the plasma he goes yeah you wouldn't want to be outside in that right now well very shortly after that, all of the plasma started entering the left wing, and that's what inevitably broke up the, the shuttle and destroyed it. But um, there was a lot of different options on how they could have how they could have been saved. So it is difficult, but here's the thing. It's 13 years later, so if I chose just to be very bitter about it, very upset about it, um, I don't think I would have had the life that I've had. I mean, I, you have a choice every day to choose joy or to choose whatever you want to choose. And that's the path I wanted to go. And I wanted to set that example for my kids. Do you think the culture change at NASA has occurred? It's hard to say. I have very purposely distanced myself from that. But those that are still at NASA, I still have really close friends um, and astronaut friends that are there. I think there's been an effort to change, but I think it's like trying to turn an aircraft carrier. It's just a very slow and painful process. So it's such a, a mammoth organization. Um, I think that their their heart is in that, but I think changing a culture is a very drastic thing to change the way people make decisions. And one of the things that they really encouraged people involved with a mission was to speak up if they saw something wrong. But at the end of the day, before that, and I know if it didn't, I don't know how it went afterwards. I mean, they gave great lip service that they wanted to hear concerns and 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 you know have a meeting every day during the mission of concerns and, and what they were looking at. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure they really wanted bad news. They don't. They didn't want to hear. Boy, you've just described every large organization, and and you know I'm a manager of a college, and we have upwards of maybe 90 people who work full time in our college, and if you count students and part time employees and things, that we're getting into the thousands. And actually, Al Sacco and I discussed this when I interviewed him, the dean of engineering, who was an astronaut. That you worry about what you don't know. But then you worry, do I have a culture where people would actually tell me? Right. And I I certainly have tried to say, look, I want to be the second person in the building to know bad news. And no bad news will be met with me saying, shut up, I don't want to to hear it. But it is so easy in a large, complicated organization. And I think that's something else, is that in an organization like a university and NASA, you have... Everybody's smart. That's a line from the movie no Zero Dark Theory. We're all smart, you know. Yep. Like nobody, so right. everybody's a genius at what they do. I mean, yes. they don't, they don't hire dumb people no. to work at NASA or to work at, at universities. No, but that can get in the way of 
effective communication because when you're very smart, when somebody gives you bad news about something you're in charge of, essentially they're saying they're challenging. It can be taken as mm-hmm. like you did something wrong. Exactly. And then the natural defense, and of course all bureaucracies have a natural you know, defensive wall over bad news might hurt my funding or things like that. So it is extraordinarily difficult. And it's a risk as the person giving the bad news because it can backfire on them. And people, I mean, they become... They become the problem instead of trying to become the solution, and you can view it that way. Yeah. If it comes, if it if it you're not on the team. No, you're not clearly, and, and that's and, and you just said <clears throat> I mean, they're they're seeking people who are part of a good team, and that's right. very important because you don't want right. people bickering in space <laughs> right. with all the decisions that have to be made. <clears throat> on the other hand, you want somebody who's going to say stop, 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 stop. Something is wrong here. Pay attention to this. Stop, right? But see, that happened during the Columbia mission, and they were, I don't know if they, I wouldn't want to carry it as far as say they were vilified, but they weren't listened to. And no question that they were viewed as the problem or just being extreme about something. And so, you know, they, they were pushed away. The other issue with NASA, and this was the biggest struggle that Rick talked about, especially in the astro, as in the role of an astronaut, all of these people have. You know, there's certified smart people. And as, you know, as one of Rick's friends said, they have brains the size of a planet. So, I mean, these are brilliant people. But as we know, they also don't have degrees in broadcast communication. Right. (laughs) They don't know how to talk to different people who aren't like them. They often but use the astronauts a, do. Yeah, that's the right. Astro- and so but I'm, the scientists, scientists and the managers know. are often people who are engineers. And, right. and God bless engineers or scientists, but they often have very specific talents and skill sets. They have a very specific jargon yes. nomenclature. And they're often not comfortable moving outside of the parameters of right. that nomenclature. And, and using in the movie Zero Dark Thirty, there's, I don't you know if you've seen it, but there's a scene there where the CIA director is asking the team that's trying to track bin Laden, do you think bin Laden is in this location, this house in Pakistan, in Abbottabad, this town where mm-hmm. he was, in this house? And he's asking this group, saying like, no, you know, no BS, is he there or is he not? And they go around the room and everybody is like, well, it's sort of a soft 60 because of this, these extenuating circumstances. And no, no it's, a, it's a harder 75%, you know. And they turn to the protagonist of the moment, who I know is actually a, a sort of an amalgamation of different people. But she says, I know certainty freaks you guys out, but 100% he's there. You can see everybody in the room is like panics, you know, at the thought <laughs> of non-scientific, non-engineering, non-intel you know, careful parsed language (laughs) but she was just waving a red flag saying yep this is it and and it's very difficult in those cultures to to say something definitive like that it is and so rick's chief complaint about that is that within the astronaut corps and on a space mission they had phenomenal responsibility but they didn't have authority so so it was not like i've heard that an airplane pilot is god on the plane they have the, the the traffic control can tell them to do something. I mean, certainly they can tell them like don't land or something like that. But in terms of authority on the plane, the pilot has the, the, the captain of a ship. But you're saying on on a on a spaceship, that's not no, the it's line not of the authority. case. So you have brilliantly talented people who 
are fully capable and they have incredible responsibility, multi-million dollar experiments and, and um, payloads and all types of things that they're responsible for, but they don't have the authority to make decisions. So they did not have the authority. Rick didn't have the authority to say, we're going to take an EVA and go look at this. So they, they weren't allowed to do that. I mean, they, they did what they were told. The culture didn't allow them to do that. Exactly. I mean, I guess in the movie, <laughs> uh, he would have right. told NASA. But, I mean, he didn't know because yeah. he was... He, but, it, but then it was not an existential threat at that. Mm-hmm. It was like there's a, there's a possibility that something might be wrong. It, 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 he it didn't wasn't know. even that. It wasn't right. even that extreme. They just told him that they, some foam came off. And, again, the, the word external- foam. I remember when I first heard the word foam... Because again, you're thinking like foam is is foam, right? Like soft, so it 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 doesn't immediately come it's to like think of like it's like a shotgun blast on yeah. the wing. I mean, it somebody fired a howitzer into the pretty much the shuttle, but but again, the word foam. I, I wonder how many people were using the word foam and sort of that softened the risk level, right? By saying foam. Well, when they did testing on the Enterprise, which is now on static display on the Intrepid um, in New York City. They did all kinds of testing on that afterwards, and I've forgotten all the specific numbers, but the the point of impact, I mean, it was it was phenomenally damaging, and it was much more catastrophic than NASA would have ever known. They learned so much from the accident investigation, they had no idea that it could be that catastrophic. So even your very certified smart people didn't know foam could be that dam- damaging. <laughs> Well, I think that's a terrific lesson, and everything you've said is going to be stay in the show because you you have just given us a wonderful view of. You've raised so many issues, I think, in our lives, our work lives, our personal lives. I think it, what you have done with the tragedy that life has handed you is such a, a, an a, a important experience to relate. I wanted to let you have some some final words for everybody that has or is or will be experiencing something that came out of... Because we often don't expect tragedy. I mean, sometimes somebody has a terminal illness, but often, you know, somebody just leaves one morning and there's a car accident or there's a plane crash or or something. You weren't preparing for the worst day of of your life. No. What what do you say to people who come to you and and share, you, you know what, something similar happened to me? I think that's the main reason that they want me to to speak at this foundation tonight because people do find themselves in a a tragedy so, suddenly and they aren't prepared. They they don't know what to do with that. And so the foundation needs to be laid beforehand. And my foundation was was my my faith in in God. And that prepared me for that day. I couldn't even pray that day, David. I had to just I just pray to the Lord help me I just there was no there were no words I just I I couldn't even pray and I was so shattered not just for me but but for my children but with that firm foundation of faith it did pave the way for me to be able to walk through I it still was horrible it still was um, shocking and catastrophic but Rick's very favorite Bible verse, and he signed it on every single picture he ever autographed, was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And it says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. I didn't understand why he had to die at the age of 45, doing what he absolutely loved, and we had a lifetime left together that was gone in an instant. But trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths 
And so I believe that verse. And it's funny because if you go to church, if you have any faith at all, and you read the Bible, you think, I really hope all of this is true. I really, I really want this all to be true. And so until you walk through a tragedy, you don't really know. But that's where the rubber hits the road when you walk through the tragedy. And so I found in the days that followed, I did need to trust him, that I didn't have to understand this. I may never understand this. I don't understand why they made the decisions that they did at NASA. I don't understand why I was a widow with two small children um, at the age of 44. I didn't understand that. But I didn't have to understand it. What it said was to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. But I have acknowledged him and he has made my path straight. So that verse is not just nice words that sound really wonderful. It, it has been the absolute truth in my life. And that's the message that I love to convey. Um, there are no easy answers to any of this, but the answers are going to be in your faith. It's not It's not going to come um, from, from the world. It's going to come from the Lord. And the Lord gives you such an eternal perspective. There's a verse in, um, I think it's in Colossians, but it says, set your mind on things above and not on things of this earth. So that doesn't mean that you walk around with your head in the clouds, but what it does mean is that don't be dragged down by the minutia of every day and look for places to be grateful instead of critical. Evelyn Husband Thompson, thank you so much. Uh, I think those are words literally to live by. <laughs> thank you so much for giving honor to uh, the memory of your husband and to Texas Tech and to West Texas and, and to the United States. So thank you for thank being on our show. Thank you. not proud love does not boast love after all matters the most love does not run love does not hide love does not keep locked inside Love is a river that flows through And love never fails you Love will sustain Love will provide Love will not cease at the end of time and love will protect Love always hopes And love still believes When you don't Love is the arms that are holding you Love never fails
Love is right here. Love is alive. Love is the way, the truth, the life. Love is the river that flows through. Love is the arms that are holding you. And love is a place you will fly to. Love never fails you.